Peace be with y'all. Peace be with you, with y'all. All right. Greetings. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We are glad to be together this morning. If you are a guest with us and you're interested in learning more about our church and the goings-on here, uh, as Dan invited you to fill out a Connect card, please do that. In addition to that, we are actually having a, a Veritas in 10 just down in the dining room in the basement uh, immediately, or not quite immediately, but almost immediately after the service. Uh, and so if you just go out these double doors, if you're interested in, in going to that, and the pastors will sit down with you and we'll explain the church in about 10 minutes. You just go through these, these uh, double doors here and down into the dining room area. If you just go down those doors, you'll find it easily enough. And uh, we'll be there to share a little bit about our church and be available to ask any questions you might have. Uh, we'll do our best to keep it to 10 minutes or less. If you have questions that make it go longer, we're willing to hang with you. So uh, not an issue. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our sermon series, Walking Through Mark. It's our 32nd Sunday in Mark's Gospel. And we are moving right along to this, really what is the center of Mark's gospel. This is a, a kind of watershed moment in Mark's gospel. This is uh, a decisive moment in Mark's gospel. It's a very significant moment in Mark's gospel. Mark 8, 22 through 38. Well, many of you know who John Bunyan is. There he is. Um, you probably know have at least heard his name because he was he wrote the second or third most read book in history. Uh, the first is obviously the Bible. The second or third, we're not quite sure if it was um, if it was uh, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis or the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, but he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, and so you probably have heard his name. You know something about who he is, but you might not know that that Bunyan lived. A hard life full of suffering, full of difficulty, not least of which involved his 12 years in a cold, dark cellar in Bedford Jail. Uh, Bunyan was arrested and put in prison for preaching without a license. See, in those days in, in England, in order to be able to preach, to legally preach, you had to get approval and licensure from the government. Bunyan could not, and probably would not even if he could, get licensed because he was what they call a tinker. He worked with metal. He was a metal worker. And yet his church called him to, to preach. His church called him to preach. And, and he went about and would preach out in, in fields and streets and in homes. And, and in fact, he was an extremely popular preacher. Hundreds, sometimes even more than a thousand would come hear him preach in just an hour's notice. The drop of a hat. The great Puritan scholar, John Owen, was known for his, his scholarly, his, his just brilliance. And, and he was once asked by the king of England himself, why do you, a man with such great learning, go to hear that poor tinker preach? To which Owen replied, I would trade all my learning in a second for the tinker's ability to touch men's hearts. 
So eventually Bunyan was arrested and jailed, and this was extremely difficult. He had, he had a pregnant young wife. She was left to raise four children from his first marriage on her own. The oldest of four was a little blind girl. His first wife had died not too long before, and early on in his imprisonment, his second wife lost their child in birth. Bunyan wrote, In his autobiography, that being in jail and separated from his family, especially his blind daughter, who was so precious to him, he said that it was so painful, it felt like having his flesh torn from his bones. He said, oh, the the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart into pieces. And yet in prison he stayed, and actually due to his refusal to agree to stop preaching, And he wrote that in order to endure and remain steadfast through it, he first had to to pick up his cross and deny himself and die to all daily. He wrote this. He said in his autobiography about his imprisonment, he said, I must pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our King here. Mark 8, 22 through 38. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Another say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, please anoint the reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, our passage starts with a parable of the passage itself, really. Uh, having entered Bethsaida on the northeastern point of the Sea of Galilee, a group brings a blind man to Jesus, begging Jesus to heal him. And as we've seen before, Jesus heals the man, and yet there's, there's something peculiar and different about this healing when compared to all the others we've seen so far. And, and that should give us pause. So normally when, when Jesus heals in Mark's gospel, he simply touches or says a word and it's done. He's healed lepers with a touch. He's delivered demoniacs with a word. He's raised the dead with a word. On the spot, no hesitancy, no resistance. And yet this miracle takes place in, in two stages and it's not fully accomplished at the first stage. That's strange, isn't it? Now, as we've seen so far, Mark is very intentional about his, his recording of these miracles, and this one is no different. It's a blind man, right? He, he, he can't see. And that already ought to catch our attention because in just the previous passage, as we saw last week, Jesus' disciples were rebuked for their blindness and their lack of understanding concerning him. And so as Jesus sets out to heal this man of his blindness, we see Jesus Oh, spit on his eyes and lay his hands on him. And he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he can see, but only sort of. He can see, but not completely, not clearly. And so Jesus then laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. My friends, this is a picture of the disciples, particularly Peter's here, their understanding of, of Christ in this passage. What happens right after this? Jesus asks the disciples who he is, and Peter responds correctly, you are the Christ. Ding, ding, ding. Correct, Peter. But then Jesus very clearly and plainly foretells his own crucifixion, to which Peter responds with rebuke and correction. And it seems that Peter sees, but not entirely clearly, not yet. And this miracle in this parable is not only a, a parable of the disciples' state here, it's also a parable of, of the kind of shift that's taking place here in Mark's gospel. Well, up until this point in Mark's gospel, the emphasis or the main theme has been Christ's identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who has come to rule over God's people as God's King in Christ, ushering his kingdom forever. And yet, this is a watershed moment 
in Mark's gospel. We have a shift of theme here. The theme from this point on in Mark will be the suffering and the crucifixion of this king. He is king, yes. But he is a king who has come to be enthroned upon a cross for the sins of his people. He is Christ, yes, but he is the Christ of the cross. And so not only are the disciples beginning to get a clearer view of Jesus, but Mark's readers here, us, we are being beckoned into a clearer view of Jesus, to see Jesus as the Christ who has come to be crucified and who is calling us to follow him in crucifixion. So we're going to unpack this now with four stages of the, the question, the confession, the Christ, or the cross rather, and the call. The question, the confession, the cross, and the call. First, look with me at the question. Find this in verse 27. That Jesus and his disciples are, are traveling to Caesarea Philippi. And in a with a Deuteronomy 6-7 kind of approach, Jesus is, is teaching them as they're on their way. While they're on their way, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? We've already seen that news of Jesus had been spreading throughout the region. His miracles, his teaching, his deliverances had gained public attention. And and with that, there had been talk concerning Jesus' identity. And the rumors spread, we see from the disciples' response here. They say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. It seems a a number of opinions are being transmitted, but not the one that is true. And I would take this opportunity to remind you, friends, that there's there's no shortage of confusion regarding the identity of Jesus in the world. Vague ideas about Jesus are still common, if not more so, regarding the most, most famous name in human history. Confusion abounds the same as it did 2,000 years ago, if I were to ask you the question, what do people say about Jesus? Who do your neighbors say he is? We'd gather up a plethora of answers, wouldn't we? I mean, if our neighbors would say that Jesus was a great teacher, but nothing more. Others would say, uh, he's just a relic of a bygone era. Even in churches, many would, would view Jesus as a good luck charm or a, a, a genie there to grant them their wishes and desires or simply an affirmation machine meant to improve one's self-esteem. Our Muslim neighbors would view him as, as nothing more than a prophet, certainly not God in the flesh. There's no little confusion regarding who Jesus is, and this ought to concern us. It ought to, to give us reason to spread clarity regarding who Jesus is and to abate this confusion. Before we even get to that point, there's a more fundamental question for us here. In all this, Jesus, he was not merely trying to get a sense of how he's polling, right? He's not, he's not trying to gain a consensus regarding who he is and how he might win a popularity contest or trend on social media. He, he's asking the question because he wants to get to the question for his disciples, the question of all questions, the question that has eternal and ultimate consequences, the question that depending on how you answer it, means the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, condemnation or salvation. His question is, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is not only asking the question of his disciples here, he's putting the question to us this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? 
Friend, this is more important than anything else in life. This is far more important than who you marry or where you work or where you live or what kind of car you drive or what kind of clothes you wear or or what kind of vacations you go on or or what kind of, you know, how many likes you get on social media. Those are often things that fill the minds of people, and on the last day, their worthlessness are going to be clearly shown in light of eternity. But this question, this, this question has eternal consequences. Who do you say that Jesus is? There will be people suffering in the lake of fire for all eternity because they answered this question wrongly, many of whom didn't aptly consider the question at all. Some of you here this morning are wrestling with this question. And that's good. You you should wrestle with this question. Far too many people just pass over this question far too quickly. This is a question that far too many people don't aptly consider. And it leads to the eternal ruination and damnation of their souls. So it's right that you should ask and, and wrestle with this question. But eventually you must answer it. You must close with Jesus. You must confess him as the Christ if you will be saved. And Peter goes on to make this confession. Look with me next at the confession. In verse 29, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Now, this is a moment teeming with significance. So far, the, the only ones in Mark's gospel who have identified Jesus as the Messiah have been Mark in his editorial comments and his introduction, the Father at Jesus' baptism, and a legion of demons in chapter 3. But here we find the first human confession of someone within the narrative itself. And this is no small thing. God is opening eyes and softening hearts here to know and understand who Jesus is. In Matthew's account of the same event, Matthew 16, 17, Jesus responds to this confession to Peter saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that means Simon, son of John, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This has been divinely revealed to Peter. Peter, like all of us, he's so spiritually dull, so hard-hearted in his natural state. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But here we find Peter understanding and comprehending something of who Christ is. This is owed to none other than the sovereign work of God. Peter sees Jesus as the Christ. But then this can bring a bit of confusion here. For some, I don't want to pass over this. What's with that particular language, you are the Christ? Some of us may not know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Christ comes from the the Greek word Christos, which stands in the place of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah is simply a word that means anointed one. In Israel, whenever someone was set apart for the office of king or prophet or priest, they were anointed with oil. They were, in essence, a, a kind of lowercase m Messiah, but then that term also came to be primarily used in the Bible and in Israel for for the promised one of God who would eventually come and rescue and redeem his people. 
and usher in this, this new age, this, this age of the new creation and the resurrection, an age of flourishing and peace and salvation like never, never before. And Peter says that Jesus is that promised Messiah. He is that Christ figure. All of that and more is present in this little confession here. And let's remember that such confession is a crucial part of Christian discipleship. Such confessions are part of what set us apart from the world, and they often invite opposition from the world. But it's essential. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess him. In contrast, Matthew 10.33 says, Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is an essential aspect of Christian discipleship. You must publicly identify with Christ. You must be baptized as a public declaration of your belonging to Christ. You must speak of the name of Christ when it's maligned at work. You must confess Christ and that you belong to him when it doesn't cost you and even when it does. You must confess Christ. Now, Undoubtedly, Mark's original audience would have seen here a worthy example to follow. They, they knew the burning heat of persecution. They remembered seeing their friends and fellow church members crucified in Rome under the intense persecution of Nero. They they, they would have smelled the the, the burning human flesh from when Nero lit Christians on fire to, to light his garden up to give light to his parties at night. Confessing Jesus as the Christ was costly for them, and, and yet they did it. It's costly for many in the world today. It's costly if you live in Afghanistan and Somalia and China. Confessing Christ there and in those kinds of places might cost you your family, your your freedom. It might cost you your life. It can be costly here too. Confessing Christ and being baptized. You might have to sacrifice a certain standing in your family. Some of you have had to sacrifice certain jobs or positions. Some of you have had to walk away from valued relationships because confessing and publicly identifying with Christ is an essential part of Christian discipleship, and it can be costly. J.C. Ryle said of this text, he said, Such bold confessions as Peter's are the truest evidence of saving faith and are required of every age if men will prove themselves to be Christ's disciples. We too must be ready to confess Christ ever as Peter did. We shall never find our master in his doctrine popular. We must be prepared to confess him with few on our side and many against. But let us take courage to walk in Peter's steps and we shall not fail of receiving Peter's reward. Jesus takes notice of those who confess him before men and will one day confess them as his servants before an assembled world. Notice in verse 30, what Jesus tells his disciples, he says he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That seems to contradict what we just talked about, but this was for a time before the crucifixion and resurrection and the day of Pentecost and sending of the Spirit. I I know this can be confusing. Why, Why does he not want people to know that he's this, the Messiah? Why, why not yet, at least? What, what is that? Well, primarily had to do with these kind of preconditioned ideas 
common in Israel about what the Hebrew Messiah would be. Galilee was a hotbed for messianic expectations. The Jews, by by this time, they'd been under foreign pagan rule for about 700 years. In the intertestamental period, many, many claims have been propagated throughout Israel that this Messiah figure that we find in the Scriptures and from texts like Daniel 7 and Psalm 2, that this Messiah figure would come and bring political and military and national liberation from their oppressors. That he would be a political king and a military leader who would lead the nation of Israel into a bloody battle against their oppressors and free them from the yoke of foreign rule. And then he would usher in that, that new age of the new creation to give Israel peace forevermore. Well, well Jesus meant to, to guard against this misunderstanding of who he is. And he was right to do so. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, a text that we just saw not too long ago, We see there that the people had already misunderstood Jesus and mistaken his identity as the Messiah. John 6.15 tells us that the people were planning to take Jesus by force and make him king. They wanted him to be this political or military Messiah. And yet, as we know, Jesus had other plans. God had not sent him to be a political military Messiah. He had sent him to be a crucified Messiah. Look with me next at the cross. In verse 32, we see that the cross is not a secret. It tells him not to tell about his identity as the Christ, but the cross, he doesn't leave as a secret. His identity as the Messiah is meant to be contained for now, but this news of the cross is plainly spoken. He says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now this this is shocking. It's shocking because Jesus takes two Old Testament prophecies, two Old Testament images and welds them together in a way that had never been done before. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is a clear reference to this figure of Daniel 7, 13 to 14. This is a very common text and, and phrase used to speak of the coming Messiah. There, Daniel describes this vision of, of the Ancient of Days, meant to be a representation of God the Father. And one like a son of man comes to him, is presented before him, and to this son of man is given dominion and glory and honor and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages come to serve him in his everlasting kingdom. It will be a global and everlasting kingdom over which he reigns. So far, so good. That's what people expect. And yet Jesus here says something so surprising. The Son of Man has come, but he hasn't come to be served, but to serve, to suffer many things, and to be rejected and to give his life on a Roman cross. In this, he takes another Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 52 and 53. And he says that this Son of Man, the Son of Man is also the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the Son of Man, yes. He will receive glory and honor and a kingdom. Yes, he will rise and ascend and reign over this global, everlasting kingdom. But first, he suffers and is rejected. 
First, he has come to be despised and rejected by men. He has come first to to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows, to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, to be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, to be chastised with the chastisement that brings us peace, to be wounded with wounds that heal us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way, but Christ, the Son of Man, has come to bear the iniquity of us all. He takes our sins upon himself and he bears them on a cross in our place. You realize that the arrival of God's kingdom would be very bad news for us if it wasn't for this cross. The kingdom is the arrival of God's reign, God's justice, God's goodness, setting the world to rights. But this is very bad news indeed for for those who have contributed to making this world so corrupt, so depraved, so awful. We are thieves and adulterers and murderers. We are liars and idolaters. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if the kingdom comes without a cross, we are all on the wrong side of it and will stand condemned before God. God is just, friends. He will not simply overlook sin. He will not wink at it. It must be dealt with. It must be judged. If sin is not judged, then God is not just and he is not good. We would never tolerate a a judge in the city of Dayton who lets criminals go free, who refuses to hand out punishment, who winks at crime and lawlessness. That would be understandably intolerable. And God is far more holy, far more just, more good than any human judge. He must judge sin. And yet this God is so loving, so kind, so gracious, so merciful. He's rich in mercy and abundant in kindness. He is abounding in steadfast love for sinners such as us. And so he has provided a way of escaping the wrath to come in the cross of his dear son. You see, that's why the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must. The cross is an absolute necessity because God is just and God is love. The cross gloriously displays the love and justice of God. The the cross stands as an eternal monument of the perfect justice and matchless mercy of God. Because at the cross, the just wrath of God was fully satisfied in Christ. Christ, on that cross, absorbed the wrath of God for all who put their faith in him. Like a sponge, he soaked up every last drop of the holy and just wrath of God for you and for me. All because he loved us and he wanted us and he intended to do good to us forever and ever in his kingdom. It seems that Peter and possibly the other disciples didn't want a Christ with a cross. They wanted a Christ without a cross. Perhaps they wanted what so many others did, a political, a military Messiah. Verse 32, Peter took the Lord aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. They they wanted a Christ without a cross. 
So many today do. So many today think that our primary problem as human beings is not that we're fallen rebels who need to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Instead, many think that what we truly need is political revolution and liberation. We need is a God figure who who gives us a better, more positive outlook on life for ourselves, better self-esteem. We need better education. We need better social systems. We need better thinking. We need to live better stories. And all of those things have their proper place. And our primary problem in life, friends, the problem beneath and, and behind all other problems is this. We are born sinners. We live as sinners. And we all die and will therefore suffer as sinners for all eternity. Because we are rebels at war with God. But God has provided the cross. And it stands as the only remedy for that reality. There's no Christ, there's no kingdom for us without a cross. And friends, there's also no Christian discipleship without a cross either. With me last at the call. Jesus rebuked Peter. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Christ alone bore the cross of our salvation, but we must all bear the cross of Christian discipleship. Perhaps our understanding of crucifixion today is somewhat anemic. We don't as readily get the offense of this statement. We wear little golden crosses around our necks and we hang up decorative crosses in our homes, but in the first century, that would have been like wearing a, a little golden electric chair around your neck or hanging up a noose in your home. The cross is an instrument of execution. It was a means by which people were put to death. And the life to which we are called in Christian discipleship, Jesus says, is worthy of being compared to nothing less than a cross. It's compared to being tortured, executed, put to death. The cross of Christian discipleship, friends, is not taken up by going without sweets during Lent. It's not dealing with a difficult mother-in-law. It's not helping a Christian friend move. It's It's not even undergoing the sufferings common to us as humanity. The cross of Christian discipleship at its core is denying, rejecting, turning away from the idols of self and all that pleases self. It is intentionally choosing a life which aims at pleasing Christ above all, even when it pains self. It takes all of the things that we place our identity and value on in life. It takes health, wealth, marriage, children, comfort, freedom, work, cars, clothes, education, sexual pleasure, and everything else. And it places it all on the table and says to Jesus, I would rather give up all of this. If, if, if it means I might gain you. We say in wedding ceremonies, forsaking all others 
I give myself wholly to you. Christ must have all of you, friend, or you will have none of him. And notice this, this is a universal call here. If anyone would come after me, if anyone. Well, some have treated texts such as this as a call to a sort of deeper Christianity or sort of deeper discipleship, that there's two kinds of or two levels of, of Christian discipleship. There's the kind that chooses the bare minimum of belief and receives salvation. But then there's the kind that chooses a deeper allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning, that is a fiction. There's no such Christianity. There's no discipleship without a cross. There's no Christ without a cross. There's no Christian without a cross. If you would have Christ and all of his benefits, you must take up his call to crucifixion. We all have ambitions, idols, desires, loves, lifestyles, behaviors, comforts that must be toppled from the throne of our hearts if we would gain Christ and his salvation. And don't make the mistake of thinking that this call to a cross is something that one takes up only at the beginning of the Christian life. This call is universal. It's also ongoing. There are many who who think themselves Christians because they, they walked an aisle and prayed a prayer once or because they were baptized but who have since grown cold, distant, indifferent to Christ, who who had a good show of repentance at the beginning of their profession, but have grown slack and have forsaken Christ. Luke's account of this very same story tells us that, that Christ included an important word here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You must pick up your cross daily to follow Christ. The denial and death to self And discipleship is a daily call. It is a daily, conscious, intentional choosing of a lifestyle which aims at pleasing Christ even when it pains self. It chooses God's word and prayer over a warm bed. It chooses community over comfort. It chooses patience with frustrating and unruling children. It chooses confession of secret sin even when it will cost you. It chooses telling the truth to a boss who can make your job miserable. It chooses forgiving a brother or sister who did you wrong. It, it, it chooses doing the right thing even when it will make you unpopular. It chooses a loss of friends and family and relationships and freedom and comfort and health and life itself even. When choosing up those things mean gaining Christ. And then it looks like waking up the next day and doing it all over again. Who would do that? Who would want to do that? We don't like denying self. We don't want to crucify self. That's unpleasant. We like to comfort self and coddle self and console self. Who would want to crucify self? Anyone in their right mind, Jesus says. Jesus gives us four reasons for picking up our crosses and following him. I want to call it the four by four that supports this call to pick up our crosses. The four, there's four of them, F-O-U-R, and they're, it's four, F-O-R. I don't know, I thought it was clever. 
And in this, Jesus, he's giving us the the economics of his kingdom. He's showing us why anyone in their right mind would want to take up their cross and follow him. It's costly, he says, but it's the best investment you will ever make. Why? Verse 35, for, because, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here's the paradox of Christian discipleship. By giving up yourself to Christ, you gain Christ and with him yourself. Your true self. Forever and ever. Self-denial is the path to true self-discovery, Jesus says. Losing yourself in Christ is how you're found. It's a paradox. But anyone who has given up self to gain Christ will know precisely what Jesus means. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? He says, don't you see how valuable your soul is? John Bunyan preached a, a great series of sermons on this very verse called The Greatness of the Soul. He says, your, your soul is so great, so valuable, so precious, so important, so priceless. It is worth giving up. Is it worth giving up your soul for all the world, for all sexual pleasure, for all honor, success? No. You could stack gold up to the stars from here to Cleveland and it would not be worth giving up your soul in exchange for it. Giving up your soul for a thousand lives and a thousand worlds filled with worldly pleasure and enjoyment would not be worth the price of your soul. And yet if you refuse to pick up your cross and follow Christ, you will lose your soul. You will suffer forever and ever in the lake of fire. And even if you gain all earthly glory, doesn't that seem like such a waste in comparison? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What could be worth getting in return for your soul? What could be as precious or priceless as your soul? What earthly good, when placed on the scales, would be as valuable as your soul? There's nothing, Jesus says. There's nothing. Verse 38, 4, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Gaining temporary comforts and honor and glory is nothing in comparison to the eternal comfort and honor and glory of the age to come for Christ's disciples. It's not worth giving it up for the price you'll have to pay in eternity. You know, this last week, Cameron Brown and I, we were on our way to a conference in Kansas City and my car broke down in St. Louis. And it was the most convenient breakdown I've ever had in my life. It was, we broke down right in front of a good mechanic. And Cameron grew up there and his dad worked just about five minutes away and was just getting off work. So he came and picked us up and took us over to a car rental place And in the car rental place, there was a sign on the wall that gave a list of things that you could be fined $450 for. If you smoked in the car, there were any kind of weird excessive smells. If 
There was pet hair in the car, so on and so forth. And most of it made perfect sense, but there was one that caught my attention. It was, if you get the windows tinted. And I was just perplexed by this. I had to ask. So I asked the lady behind the counter, has anyone ever really tinted the windows on their rental car? And she said, it happens two to three times every week. Apparently, there are people who on a regular basis are getting rental cars, tinting the windows, returning them, and paying a high cost for it. And that makes about as much sense as us choosing self-centeredness and worldly glory instead of the cross and the Christ. Whatever comfort and glory we possess at the expense of Christ is temporary and will cost us dearly in the end. If you're not a Christian here today and you've been wrestling with this question of who Christ is and you've been counting the cost, know this, you will never, ever, not for all of eternity, regret picking up your cross and following Jesus. You will never regret it. It is costly. Sometimes more than others. But it is infinitely worth the investment because in picking up your cross and denying self, you gain self-discovery and eternal life. Close with Christ today. Don't wait. Your soul is too precious to waste. For those of you who do follow Christ, remember you must do this daily. It is a daily, conscious, intentional decision to aim at pleasing Christ even when it pains self. You know, it seems like I get comments whenever I preach passages like this, messages like this. People say that picking up your cross is too abstract of an idea. You need some practical application and steps and prescribed actions to know what it looks like to follow Christ. And maybe there's something to that. But I'd venture to say that it's more likely that our issues with picking up our crosses and self-denial are not due to a lack of know-how, but a lack of willingness. We all know how to sacrifice for what we love. There are parents in this room who willingly sacrifice every single day for your children. There are those of us in the room who sacrifice every day for the sake of job or school. There are people in this room who gladly and willingly sacrifice for the sake of their spouses and their marriage, forsaking all others, giving themselves wholly to this other person. That's just because when you think that something is worth it, sacrifice just comes naturally, doesn't it? We don't need 12 steps to self-denial and picking up our crosses. We need to be enamored with the worthiness and beauty and excellence of Jesus. We need to see his worth and his excellence clearly. We need to see the Jesus who denied himself and gave himself holy for us. We need to see this Jesus who gladly gave himself on that cross for us and for our salvation. We need to see this Jesus who knew only the pleasures and perfections and praises of heaven for all eternity past, but who stepped into human flesh to suffer and be rejected for you. The Jesus who did that in order to give you glory and honor and pleasure and life forever. The Jesus who did all of this so that you might have him and with him yourself for all eternity. 
When you see a Jesus like that, well, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. He's worth passing a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life. He is worth considering yourself, your spouse, your children, your job, your health, your enjoyment, and all as dead to you and you to them because in dying to them you gain Christ and with him you gain everything. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts as we take the bread and the cup now. May we remember and be comforted by the cross Jesus Christ, the cross of salvation. And may we also be strengthened to pick up the cross of Christian discipleship and follow him. I pray in his name. Amen.